The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What if your coffee cup started talking to you? What would you offer as an appropriate response? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. It's sometimes hard to put your finger on whether someone who has experienced an NDE has truly learned from that experience what life and death are all about. For our guest today, Robert Kopecki, it actually took three NDEs before he wrote his new book, How to Survive Life and Death, A Guide for Happiness in This World and Beyond. But believe me, it was worth the wait. Reading it reminded me of nothing less than Ram Dass's famous book, Be Here Now, but without reference to all the LSD. Robert Kopecki survived a traumatic childhood and traveled extensively as a young man, living a variety of lives as a ski bum, a martial artist, a factory welder, a monumental sculpture fabricator, an underground cartoonist, and finally, as an award-winning illustrator, art director, and animation designer. His journeys from the Mayan underground to remote South Pacific islands to the capitals of Europe to the deserts of Arizona and the canyons of New York City were punctuated by three dramatic, distinctly different near-death experiences. In his day job, he continues his art, designing animation for agencies, TV, and the Internet. He also is writing spiritual essays and memoirs for his blog, Art, Faith, and the Coco Lion. Robert? Aloha, and welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you very much, Lee. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Robert, if if you would, as an introduction, please tell um, our audience about your first NDE. Sure. Yeah, I was just thinking it's a pleasure to be anywhere, you know, when you had, <laughs> <laughs> yes. you had three of them. Uh, my first one was I was in my late 20s, and I was working a lot. I was very ambitious then, and I didn't really have a spiritual life to speak of. I had taken my wife to the airport and was on my way home, and I had a, one of those equipment malfunctions that you don't see very much anymore, which will tell you about what year it was. I, the, my cassette deck in my car malfunctioned, and it mm. ate my tape, which puts it in the 80s, right, in the mid-80s. Is I remember all that well. <laughs> right, and a terrible feeling, you know, when you hear that bloop and you know your tape's been eaten. And I grabbed the cassette and pulled it out, and the long string of tape was caught in the mechanism. And the next thing I knew, the lights went out. It was just bang, just like that. I was on an unfamiliar road, and there was a vehicle that was parked in an odd situation, and I wasn't paying close enough attention. And I glanced off it and ran into a telephone pole. And the very next instant, I found myself at the level of the top of the telephone pole. It was, it was dusk, and I was right next to the street lamp. And I looked down over the scene and saw the car that I had been driving smashed into that telephone pole. And I could see uh, my arm hanging out the window. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't mm-hmm. sure at first who it was, but it was me. And uh, I was able to look over hedges and trees into yards, and I saw uh, lights, porch lights snapping on and people running out of their houses and saying to call an ambulance and the like. And so I was simply... Uh, like many near-death experiencers will report, I w- was free. I, you know, I felt very comfortable, very uh, warm. I felt a part of everything, uh, kind of a holistic uh, um, intellect kind of 
took over for me. I didn't feel any um, any uh, real angst or worry, uh, and I watched as a, an ambulance arrived and loaded me into the uh, back of the car, and I tried to talk to people, but they didn't hear me. They didn't realize mm-hmm. I was there. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew all along that I was not alone. I had the sense of a benevolent presence up to my left side behind me that then, uh, as I recall, basically told me that it was time for me to go. And I was shepherded into uh, what I recall as being a kind of a, a gray wool cloud, kind of a soft cloud, and ended up in a very pastoral setting, sort of like an outdoor cafe or something like that, a park, mm-hmm. having uh, what was essentially an interview uh, of a kind. I can't remember the uh, the details of the personage that I was with, only that it was it was very congenial and easy and um, important. I had the sense that there were important things being hashed out that I wasn't supposed to uh, really remember the details of the, the scene, and I didn't actually regain consciousness, and I woke up in a hospital about 18 hours after. the. Uh, I woke up briefly at one point in between. They were moving me to a hospital that had plas- a plastic surgery residency, but um, I came to really about 18 hours after the accident, and uh, that, was, that was the nature of the first NDE where I definitively learned that I am a spiritual entity who's occupying a physical body. That was the main lesson that I got from that, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then your second one, which happened quite a bit later, as I recall from the from the book, was uh, quite different from that. Yes, yeah, they were all very distinctive, although they were all, you know, uh, familiar formats for near-death experiences. I did not walk uh, through the tunnel into the light. That's one I did not get. Uh, unfortunately, but um, yeah, they were spread out over about 15 years, the three of them, sort of evenly, and and in the in the next one, I had uh, I had during the course of my life um, had some spiritual bumps and bruises that ended up in in me acting out, not behaving very well, and hanging out with all sort of the wrong elements and and living life in what I charitably call a riotously inappropriate. Fashion, and I, <laughs> I essentially had a, uh, um, you know, it was peppered with these dark nights of the soul, kind of right, and that was certainly part and parcel of the way that I was living at the, at that time. I had what I call a uh, um, a toxic reaction to my lifestyle, <laughs> and I found myself <laughs> well put, or, yeah, losing consciousness on uh, on the floor of my apartment, and having the entire room. Uh, fill in with a bright white cloud, the, the kind that you might see if you looked out an aircraft window, if you were flying at elevation and up in the sun and you went through a white cloud, very bright white cloud, mm-hmm. and then uh, in the midst of it, a screen opened up. And so it was this near-death experience that you've heard of where scenes from my life were shown to me. And this was not my greatest hits reel. You know, this was not <laughs> golden moments. It was... They were uh, these kind of uncomfortable, pivotal moments from my life that I uh, probably should have learned something from, but apparently hadn't, that I 
was kind of required to revisit uh, one after another. And each scene, uh, which I don't really remember exactly, I have remembered bits and pieces of some of them over the years, but sometimes I don't really trust my uh, my memory to fill in the details of the near-death experiences, so I just I just kind of relinquish the need to, to go there and take yes. the larger lessons as the most important uh, part of it. But I, I re-entered these scenes with my heart. I re-experienced uh, these scenes, and uh, one after another, I absorbed kind of the meaning that uh, that the overall experience had, which is that each and every moment is an eternal moment of of possibly great profundity, you know, of great importance. And so we need to uh, we need to be aware of that in each moment that we. The way we behave in the world and the way we behave certainly to one another is uh, is rather critical in, in the scale of our larger life that uh, stretches before and beyond this one, and certainly uh, in the way that we affect other people's lives. That was one of the great great lessons I learned was even the smallest aside can can have um, can have cause and effect in the world, and so I need to uh, I need to be present for each moment of my life, where I also you know can find the, the miraculous nature of everything too. Right. You know, with with so many people dying all the time every day, it's it's really mind-boggling how each person can be personally welcomed into the spiritual world, and and how our uh, each event of our lives can can be so important. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. The um, the interesting thing about uh, about all of that, I think, is, you know, my job is not like I, I said or mentioned earlier. Kind of, my job is really not to report on the architecture of heaven or of what is actually going on. I really don't know exactly uh, what's going on. From my experiences, I did not experience this sort of structural aspects of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I did come away with was this uh, understanding that heaven and hell are are where we are all the time. They are dependent on our ability to witness the love arising from everything we look at. So in this life, people are born into this life into what might be considered hell, right? And other people are born into what might be considered heaven. And yet some of the people born into what might be considered hell live a very heavenly life, and vice versa. Some people... (laughs) We're born with uh, with um, all the advantages, you know, live a very hellish life. I don't believe that that's any different in any life that we will live in, that uh, the experience of near-death experiencers being, the, the different experiences of near-death experiencers having such range, mm-hmm. I think, is, is simply more of the same as we find here. So some people will enter into, you know, hellish environments, uh, depending on what they're carrying in their in their heart, in their soul. And uh, similarly, uh, a lot of people can find heaven right here, you know, the essence of heaven, which is experiencing life with an open heart and being engaged in that field of love that uh, I and other near-death experiencers always witness when we're there, right. I think, you know. In in your book, you, you speak of an animating source behind all life, could life itself be the source, or or is that too much like worshiping the creation? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the thing that really interests me a lot these days are the neuroscientists and their suggestions of there being a god part of the brain and the like. Uh, 
And of course, there's a God part of the brain. There's a heartbreak part of the brain. There's a hot and cold part of the brain. <laughs> there's a part of the brain that does connect us to our spiritual experience, even extra dimensionally. Mm-hmm. And the the um, the aspect of their uh, of consciousness being, uh, as science suggests, consciousness being something that's projected from each individual mind and then kind of agreed upon. <laughs> seems very unlikely to me in in um, terms of what my experiences were. I experienced consciousness as a field, loving consciousness as a field that I uh, was engaged in and was fully engaged in on the other side, so to speak. I, I touch it here uh, when I meditate and when I'm, you know, really connected spiritually. Um but if you look at what God might be in the sense of your question, or what this animating source uh, might be, then consciousness se- certainly seems like a candidate to me. And, you know, I believe that that's consistent with the idea that all life here is an expression of consciousness, that all animals and forms of life are uh, expressions of consciousness in their own way, and experiencing that conscious field through their own sensory abilities, just like humans uh, do. Mm-hmm. So do you think of love as a physical force like gravity? Yes, yeah, I yeah. I yeah, I do consider it more like quantum, more like a quantum field where uh we can manifest beauty out of it at any moment, that sort of thing. We can manifest meaning and purpose out of any moment, just like in the quantum field you can manifest uh, matter apparently. All right. Mm-hmm. I think that um I think that that love and specifically a loving consciousness, I think that all of consciousness, this whole expression of life, is grounded in love, is basically a benevolent force, like flowers blooming. I like to think of the flower, the wildflower that grows through the cracks in a parking lot, you know? Here it comes. There's nothing stopping it. It's, it's heliocentric. It's reaching for the heavens. Your mentioning of flowers reminds me, in in your book you mentioned the story about James Flowerdew and his past life remembrances of Petra. Right, and yeah. When, when I was 22, I had the audacity to horseback into Petra in a sheik's white robe. Wow. Which, <laughs> which in those days <laughs> amused the guards no end when they finally figured out that I was an American. How but great. I, but I had that feeling that I'd done it before. Um you think we reincarnate for our own amusement or actually to grow spiritually, or perhaps both? Uh, both, you know, and that's, I'm, I'm oftentimes now asked to sort of put the shoe on the other foot because people want their, their fears about death deflated. And that's, you know, one of the great purposes of my book is to try to do that very thing. But it does appear to me that our souls, you know, our authentic spiritual self, is larger than our bodies. It's not some tiny thing that escaped from my body, but it felt more like my soul spit my body out on the ground, kind of, you know. Mm -hmm. And that our souls apparently uh, prefer or even require a death experience for our growth, for our spiritual growth. We need to be in that place of, of total humility for us to progress spiritually. So... Um, you don't really even have to die. You know, I've I've had this come up where, well, does this mean 
that suicide's an all right thing because the afterlife is so beautiful? Well, no, not in the sense that one should actually kill themselves because that's creating some bad karma for yourself, I think. But it is necessary at times to kill some aspect of yourself. When you lose that big job or when your uh, significant other leaves you or somebody you love dies and leaves you alone in the world, feeling alone in the world, that's a kind of a death experience in itself, you know, where you are delivered to that state of, of uh, profound humility from where your spiritual growth can take place. Uh, that's what I strongly believe. So that's part of uh, the reincarnation cycle. And to me, it seems reincarnation is literally a no-brainer. If you ask your heart why Mozart could write concertos at age five, it will tell you that it's because he learned how to do it in another life and brought mm-hmm. it along with him. You know, so yeah. Apparently, we need to uh, we need to live and die and live and die and live and die. And this particular one is very sensory and you know not at all easy this life right in in terms of what we pick up and what we lay down um you speak in your book about setting down the baggage we carry and uh, and yet uh, at the same time you admire uh, great spiritual leaders like gandhi who actually picked up a lot of baggage uh, the baggage of others as it were and um so if we want to be the change we want to see in the world what what's the obligations here for carrying baggage or shedding ourselves of baggage. Yeah, well, those are sort of two different issues because one I would put in the context of my three, what I call uh, flip, kind of flippantly, tips for happiness, which are sort of doorways to spirituality. For me, they're radical kindness, radical forgiveness, and radical surrender. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of in the camp of radical forgiveness where... Um, If we look at each other without judgment and allow the psychic energy to arise and just to witness it with an open heart, then you can see the struggles of another person. If maybe they're doing something awful to you, if you respond to it in those terms that they're doing something awful to you and it's unfair and you hate them and they've ruined your life, then you're carrying their psychic baggage with you. And... That will define your life. It's very difficult to set that down when somebody really has done you wrong, but radical forgiveness is a means to overcome that, grow from it, and move on in your life where you do not continue to carry somebody else's psychic trauma and pain with you, defining you. You know, I I tell people, I got plenty of my own, you know, (laughs) that I'm working on, right? So, well, Gandhi and, and spirits like that, who seem like very bodhisattvic to me, you know, these they feel like ancient spirits, and this is nothing new. Everybody would consider, you know, Krishna returning to, or Jesus coming back. Um, somebody like Gandhi comes, and they it's a service calling, right, that they're taking on. Mm-hmm. They take on the suffering of others. Uh, onto themselves as a kind of a lightning rod for the the um, the sensory pains, the emotion and trauma of this world, and then they stand as these shining examples of what uh, pure open heartedness can can accomplish, which is to change the entire course of history. You know, a little guy wrapped in sheets, they'll change the course of history for billions of people. It's really quite quite miraculous. 
I wonder if when we're on the other side and know a whole lot more about ourselves and truth than, than we do in this world, if uh, we all suspect or hope that we'll be bodhisattvas to others, and that's why we want to reincarnate. And uh, then, of course, so many of us blow it on the side again. <laughs> but yeah, uh, maybe, maybe that's the initial impulse is to be a bodhisattva. Yeah, uh, you know, I do think that um, the nature of this particular life is self-promoting. <laughs> mm. I don't just say that because I have a new book out and I'm feeling the weight of that, you know, contact. But, <laughs> That's all right. It's a it's a it's a book well worth promoting. Let me say that. Oh, thank you so much. That's very it's kind terrific. Of you to say. Yeah. But the um, the nature of this form is to self enhance. Kind of, you know, and so uh, when we uh, think, hey, you know, I'm very spiritual. I'm a very spiritual guy. I'm out there doing good things for people all the time. Well, that's not the profound humility that I'm talking about that engenders spiritual growth, right? <laughs> uh, that is the, our nature uh, to self-enhance uh, somewhat. And my feeling is that um, from the kind of holistic connection that I experienced on the on the other side, on the, the three experiences, was that um, that wasn't really a part of anything, you know? And since I've come back, since I had the, the moment of clarity in my life, years after the third near-death experience, in fact, um, I have cared much less uh, about what people thought of me or, <laughs> you know, how I look or anything. I, I mean, I... You know, I bathe and I try to dress neatly and stuff like that, but it's it's not so important to me, the externals. And service just seems like one of those uh, mechanisms of the invisible uh, machinery. It's mm-hmm. like a doorway of the uh, a tool, visible spiritual machinery that lies right under this earth. You help other people and you are accessing your higher self just like that, you know, right away. In your book, you reference several times our pets' abilities to uh, provide pure love. Do you see our pets as people in reincarnated? Uh, you know, I don't know. I'll just <laughs> I'll just come <laughs> clean with that one. I'm not certain how that works. I do. I expect that that would be the case. Actually, I mean, in my heart, which is sort of the ultimate authority to me, when I start intellectual when I start intellectualizing things. I get mixed up and confused. When I have faith in the intuitive intelligence that arises from my heart, I generally am quite happy with the results. They've worked very, very well for me. In that sense, yes, I believe the animals and human spirits and even probably plant spirits and insect spirits and amphibious spirits, we all cycle through different forms of consciousness where no form of consciousness uh, is entitled to a, a greater standing in, in God's eyes, so to speak. I think if if we could live a day as a porpoise, we would understand uh, the the, um, the sort of uh, importance of being a porpoise rather than being a person, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I do know that um, that. Animals as conveyors of consciousness, as experiencers of consciousness, sharing this, the, this field with us, are much more intelligent than uh, the human ego tends to give them credit for. You know, people, uh, 
treat them as accessories and as food sources, and none of that is uh, is necessary or appropriate, I believe, that uh, we need to uh, respect and honor all the life on this earth so that we can be one with it and make it work like we're not doing right now. You know? mm. Exactly. Well, uh, as a converse question to that, I guess, uh, you talk a little about hungry ghosts in your book, and I'm wondering... Can hungry ghosts be spirit guides, uh, even if they've failed themselves in their own lives? Uh, I would imagine, um, you know, I would imagine that, uh, you know, it's hard to know exactly what the logic is of somebody who's suffering or struggling. I mean, when you witness people in this life and you see how difficult life can be for them or they make for themselves and for others, you think, why would you ever do such a thing? Well... Those motivations are are deep and unseen, and so it's I have no you know specific knowledge of um, of how that all adds up. But it is clear that um, for me in this life, when I witness people who are suffering and struggling, they can often be my teachers, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so um, to me, they're lacking the the extra dimensional boundaries that a lot of people have. I I think that, yes, you probably can uh, learn uh, from a suffering or struggling spirit. Um, you need to be grounded, though, to protect yourself from that sort of thing, I think, particularly right. people who are, who are mediums, you know, who are really channeling a lot. I think they have to be careful and, and protect themselves. Yeah, I picked up on that uh, quote you quote in... Um in your book, when you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah. And I th- thought perhaps that was that was their motivation too, that they were trying to uh, get started again. Right. Uh, tell 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 the audience a little about um, uh, the meaning of aloha, which I opened the show with. Oh yeah, well it's it's uh, hello and goodbye, and in Hawaiian it translates uh, as uh, as. Um, Alo being the presence and ha of breath. So it's the presence of breath. Aloha. Hello and goodbye. I love that. You know? Yeah. I didn't real, I didn't realize that until I read it and, uh, I thought that was terrific. Yeah. And breath is, breath is such an important part of presence. I mean, it's when God breathed life into us, that was Absolutely. breath, you know, and, uh, so it's got that kind of, um, weight and power to it. Yeah, the spirit of life, ruach in uh, Hebrew, the breath, the breath of life. Yes, and I believe it's the same breath, the same word for the breath of life that was breathed into the animals as well as as into uh, mankind. I think so too, and that uh, that helps me support my my idea that we're all sharing consciousness at a very similar level, really. <laughs> right. Um, at the end of your book, uh, you give a quote from Rumi, God does not look at outward forms, but at the love within your love. How do you, how do you read that? That, uh, that we can express love in this life, uh, and just as a matter of fact, as a matter of our daily purpose. But folded within that is an experience of the greater shared energy of the heart, this field of compassionate uh, consciousness of love that I'm talking about. So it's really the love within your love is the, the most important. It's 
folded back around. You're not just forgiving others, you're forgiving yourself, and you're entering into a state of oneness with all of life. You know, that's, mm. the, that's the way that I see that a particular right. statement. And I love Rumi. Boy, beautiful. Yeah, oh, he's, he's powerful. He's wonderful. Yeah. Love, love and forgiveness are, are almost the same thing. I mean, one, one can't really exist without the other. Right. You know, Robert, uh, we're just about out of time for today. Um, but tell the folks how they can find your book. Well, it's on my, uh, you can find it any place you go online. You know, all the big sellers and stuff have it online. I do like to mm-hmm. tell people to go to their local bookstore and patronize them because I love local bookstores and want them to continue to exist and just order yes. it from there. You can always go to my um, to my a blog too, which is robertkopecky.blogspot.com, Art Faith in the Cocoa Lion, and I I have a Facebook uh, author page too, and there's you know all the typical ways online to to reach that stuff. Well, thank you. I, I want to thank our guest Robert Kopecky for describing some of the things he's learned from his life-changing NDEs today. If you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows. Just go to our website at nderadio.org, and for more information about the work of IANDS, check out their website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. Thanks for listening.